well, how were people saved in the Old Testament? That's a question that people ask a lot. People come and say, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Because we think, is it different than the New Testament? When you look at the Old Testament, you see people came to God with sacrifices, and we talk about the law, and we saw the rules, and we saw that people tried to keep the law, and they offered these things. Is that the way they came to God? In fact, in most of the Old Testament, or much of the Old Testament, we see the nation of Israel under the law. How were people saved? Did they come through God, to God through a sacrificial system? Well, let's think about this. How were people saved in the New Testament? That's us, of course. How are people saved? We're saved simply by faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting in Him. He died on the cross, paid for sin, rose again. We trust in Him and Him alone. Well, key that I want you to understand is that people in the Old Testament are saved in exactly the same way as people in the New Testament. It's simply by faith, by trusting God and taking Him in His Word. In fact, salvation is always by faith, both Old Testament and New Testament. It's always the same. It's always by faith. We're going to see that Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. That's the pattern. People come to God simply by faith. And when they believe in God, they get righteousness. In the Old Testament, people believed. They believed that God was going to send the Messiah and the Savior. In the New Testament, we believe that God has sent the Messiah and the Savior, Jesus Christ, and we trust in him. Now, as we look at our passage tonight, we're going to see that idea, but we're going to see the trustworthiness of God, what he says he does. We can be assured. In fact, God assures Abram of the promises. Now, let's remember something. In Genesis chapter 12, God told Abram to leave the land that he was living in, leave the earth of the Chaldees, and go to a land that he would show him. And then he made the promise, he said, that he would give him the land, the seed, and the blessing. When we get to chapter 15, now that was the promise to Abram, but guess what? If you really look at it carefully, even though God said, I'll give you the land, the seed, the blessing, there's never been the covenant. It's never been ratified. And so what does God do? We're going to see in chapter 15, and we won't see it tonight. We'll see the beginning of it tonight, but we'll see it the next time. We'll see that he cuts the covenant. He makes it legal. He fulfills, in a sense, his promise by saying, here is the covenant. We were reminded of the power and the faithfulness of God. Now, let's think about where we are and what we've been seeing. I love narrative stories. I mean, I love, I love the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament history. I love the Gospels. I love the book of Acts because there are stories. They're narrative. Now, they're easier to teach, but they're harder to apply. You know that in the, whenever you have narrative literature, you can read the stories and you can teach through the stories, and they're easy to teach, but they're much harder to apply because if David kills Goliath, what's the application of that? You know, how, how do you deal with that? When you, when you look at this passage, what's the applications? Now, when you go to the New Testament and you get to the letters, they're harder to teach, but they're easier to apply. Because when the Bible says, stop letting sin reign in your mortal body, there's your application. So when you study narrative literature like we're seeing here, I love it because you see the story and you see God dealing with Abraham and all these things. But at the same time, is how do we make applications to these things? Well, let's think about what we saw. We've been seeing the story. Four kings came from the north and ravaged the land, taking off Lot, who is Abraham's nephew. Abraham took 318 of his men, and he had uh, uh, three men with him that they were living with him. They had an alliance, and uh, it was Eshcol and, uh, you know, those guys in Mamre. And they all left, and they went up, and they had a great victory. <coughs> when they came back from the victory, they were met by two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. The king of Sodom, as you know, that Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked cities. In fact, the Bible has already talked about how wicked they were. Uh, and Lot would, shouldn't have ever moved down there, and he did. And we're going to find that when he comes back, after being saved from this victory, from this battle and everything else, he, what does he do? He moves right back down to live in Sodom again when he should not have done that. But Sodom was wicked, and so when the king of Sodom came to uh, Abram, Abram wouldn't take anything from him. But the king of Salem came, and Salem is the same as Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And his name was Melchizedek, and he blessed, he blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he had from this victory. Now, all this is over. 
Abraham has had a great victory. But then he begins to think, what about those kings that I defeated? What if they come back? I mean, the last time they came through here, they whipped everything except us because they didn't bother us. But now I've become their enemy because I whipped them. And I took all their stuff back. I've made some enemies. How am I going to make it? Well, God reminds Abraham that God is his strength and his shield. It's pretty powerful. Let's break down our passage tonight. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, here's the, the whole thing. It's God, God gives the promise of the offspring. That's Genesis 15, 1 through 6. That, and then in verse 7 through 21, God ratifies the covenant. We won't get the whole thing. We'll stop about verse 11. We might even read verse 12 just to sort of see the flow. But next time, the next time we meet, it won't be next week, of course, because we have the, the Christmas uh, program for the children and the food. But uh, we'll talk about how that fits together and finish off that chapter. So God's promise of the offspring, and we'll see how that, and then God ratifies the covenant. So let's think about it. Now, what we're going to see uh, as we think about this, uh, probably the key is that God's trustworthiness and the pattern of Abraham concerning salvation, because Abraham is a pattern for all of us. You may think, when I look at the Old Testament, you say, I what do I have in common with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, what, what do you have in common with those people? I mean, you say, well, I really don't have that much in common with most of them, but the bottom line is you have the most important thing in common with them is that they believed God and it was credited to them for righteousness, and you believed God and it's been credited to you for righteousness. That's really the key. And so we're going to see God's trustworthiness and the pattern of salvation. Well, let's begin, and we're going to see the dialogues. In fact, we're going to see God's going to dialogue two or three times with Abram. This is the first dialogue where God promises the offspring, and it's pretty powerful. Look at verse 1 of Genesis 15. It says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, sometimes we don't think about this. <clears throat> what, what Bible did Abram have to read? Didn't have anything. I mean, you ever thought about that? Now, here, we always talk about Adam and Eve and Noah and Abram and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. What Bible did any of those people have to read? Didn't have any Bible. How do we know God's Word? How did they know God's Word? What did He do? He talked to them. How did He talk to them? Huh? How? How? Let me ask you this. It says here, now that we get a clue here. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It's like he's going, he goes into a vision. Ooh, a vision. I'm seeing things. It's God. How did God talk to Joseph, the husband of Mary? In dreams, every time, every time. How did God give revelation to Daniel sometimes? Through visions and dreams there are times that we'll read and it says and the Lord said to Abram how did he say that did he have some appearance did he come in some form which we often call a theophany a theophany means a God appearing in some way or did did Abram just hear God go yes yeah, sir yes sir yeah do you remember when Samuel was a little boy and God called Samuel what did he do? It was at night. Samuel would lay down. Eli the priest was there. And God said, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, What do you want? 
He left, said, I didn't call you. I didn't call you. Go back to bed. He went, okay. Huh? I thought you called me. He said, Samuel. Somebody said, Samuel. He goes back to bed. Samuel. Samuel. He gets up. Goes back to Eli. I said, sir, what do you want? He said, I didn't call you. Would you quit doing this? He goes back and lays down again. He says it again. He comes the third time. And then Eli said, wait a minute. This must be God talking to him. He said, the next time it happens, say, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went and laid down. And he said, Samuel, Samuel. He said, Lord, your servant. And then God gave him a message. We know that we have the written revelation. We have the entire word of God. We got it all. We could study it, reread it, put it down. But think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all of these things. They didn't have written revelation. So it says the word of the Lord came to, to, came to Abram in a vision. It's like he went into a treasure. It's like he maybe had been sitting somewhere, maybe eating, maybe sitting out by his tent. And he saw a vision. He saw something that, that really wasn't happening in a sense, but God made his appearance to him in some way. And what does God say to him? Now, I want you to think. Notice it says, after these things. What things? After Abraham and his 313 men and Mamre and Eshcol and Anar went and got the victory and, and they came back in chapter 14, verse 20, and the Lord, you know, all of these great things have happened and uh, the victory comes by God and, and Abraham then was now concerned because he's made enemies. How is he going to defend himself against these enemies? What if these people come back? So what is, what is God going to remind Abraham? And it's the same thing because you wake up this morning and you go, what if something bad happens today? What if, if you're a student and you say, what if I don't pass my test? What if I don't study the right things? What if this happens? What if this happens? What if I don't, what if I have a flat tire? What if I get ready? And this doesn't, we have all these what ifs, right? How are we going to make it? God says, wait a minute, I'm your strength and shield. We talked this morning about going and fulfilling the Great Commission. How, how do we go? We don't go in our what? We don't go in our strength or our authority. We go in the authority of Jesus Christ. So what is God going to say to Abram after these things? The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear Abram. When God says don't fear, what's a person doing? They're, they're afraid. You know, every time an angel comes, people are always afraid. What do angels have to say? Stop being afraid. Fear not. Because we're afraid of angels. If an angel appeared right here, if an angel appeared right here, every one of us in this room would be afraid. They're powerful beings, much more powerful. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel. So you don't want to mess with angels. Right? Especially the bad ones. There's some demons. There's bad angels. There's Satan. I, I see Christians who are in some different view say, I'm going after Satan. I say, best thing you could do is just sit down. Okay? And you draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. You don't go be looking for the enemy. Because he's already looking for you best thing to do is you just get close to God. So how do we make it? God says, don't be afraid, Abram, because Abram was afraid. He said, I am your shield. I am a shield to you, and your reward will be great. He says, stop being afraid. Abram was afraid the enemy was going to come back and get him. His eyes were on his circumstances, and that happens to us a lot. We think about all the what-ifs, what's going to happen. Two things God says, what is it? I am your shield. I'm your protection, and your reward is great. I'm your provision. God is always our provision and our protection. He is, day in and day out. We wake up every morning. He's the provider, protector. What does he say? I'll provide every need that you have. My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches, glory in Christ Jesus. He's the provider. He's the protection. I will never leave you, forsake you. What should you fear? 
He's the provider protector. He always is. He tells Abram this. He says, don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and I'm your reward. Your reward will be great. I'm the provider protector. Psalm says God is our strength and our shield. He always does that. And think about it, even in our lives, God does the same thing for us. He's the protector. What is Hebrews? Never leave you, forsake you. What is he? He's the provider. He'll supply every need that you have. That's just what we said. That, that's how it fits. He will protect from the enemy. And you can imagine Abram waking up going, you know, I may have made a mistake going after those people. Because there's a lot of them. And, and maybe I got a lucky break. He didn't get a lucky break. Who gave him the victory? God gave him the victory. In fact, that's what it said in verse 20. And blessed be the Lord God most high who has delivered your enemy into your hand. Your enemies into your hand. It's always that way. Abram doesn't have to be afraid. Now, since God's talked about this, Abram's going to say, well, I'd like to talk about something else for just a second. He goes to dialogue with God. And here's this question. You've made these promises to me about a land and a seed and a blessing. Isn't that right? But how am I, how's that going to happen? Because I'm way over 75 by now. Because he was 75 when he left. And he's been down there a little while. He's over 75 and he has what? No children. He has no offspring whatsoever. And how, how is he going to have offspring to possess the land and this nation and the blessing and all this? How's that going to happen? He's actually thinking, you know, I think it's passed me by. I think I'm too old. So look what he says. Verse 2. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, he says again, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Now what is he talking about? He actually says to God, okay, I've been thinking about this, Lord, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm 75, 76, 77, 78, I'm, I'm old, and, and I don't have a child. And what are you going to give me since I don't have any children, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? What in the world is that? Well, what we're seeing is that he has basically adopted a man by the name of Eleazar, who he's treating as a son. He's taking care of him. He's... Probably a servant in his household. In that culture, if a man had no sons, he could take someone from his household, <coughs> usually a servant, and make them an heir. And what he's really saying to God is, I'm not really understanding this, God, because you said it'd be the land, the seed, and the blessing, but since you have given me no children, I guess Eleazar is going to be the one. He's going to be the one to be the heir. He's going to be the one that all the promises come true. That's what he's thinking. Notice he goes on to say... And and Abram says, since you have given me no offspring, verse 3, to me, one born in my house is my heir. He didn't say one born by me. He didn't produce this child. But he's basically taken this one to be his main man. You realize that? that, that that's his thing. Haven't you ever wondered and noticed in our own lives that God has a plan. He's working all things according to counsel's will. And it's not exactly what we think ought to happen. Or it's not happening fast enough. And so what we want to do is sometimes do our own thing. And say things like, well, since you're not going to do this, then maybe I ought to do this. This is what we're fixing to see. What does he say? Since you haven't given me a child, I guess it's going to be Elias or Damascus. God says, wrong. Wrong again. 
Look, we're going to get a little further up. Chapter 16. What does Sarai say? Well, we still ain't had any kids. Obviously, it's not going to work through me. I'm Sarai. I'm probably in my 70s. So the best thing to do is, why don't you take Hagar, my handmaid, a young woman, have children through her? Isn't that probably what God wants us to do? Was that what God wanted them to do? No. Why did she do that? Because they both said, I guess it's not going to work. You ever said, God, God, I guess, I guess it's not going to work. And what God says is, you're just going to have to trust me. It's going to work in my time, in my way, and it's always best. Look how God answers this when he says, I guess you have given me no offspring, so one born in my house will be my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, Eleazar Damascus, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. He said, you're going to produce the child. You're going to produce the child. Not somebody else. You will. What God is saying, you may be old, but I'm not through with you yet. And you're going to do exactly what I said. Now, that's why you can still get to chapter 16. And Sarah say, why don't you go ahead and take Hagar? And he goes, well, God said it was coming through my body. That's what he's thinking. Look what happened. Now, this is at nighttime. He's probably laying there going, I don't know what's going to happen if the enemy comes back. And God says, why are you afraid? I'm your strength and your shield. He says, well, now that we're talking about that sort of thing, how am I going to have a kid? You haven't given me a child. I guess Eleazar is going to be the one. And then God said, no, 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 no. It's coming from your body. Here, go outside. What's outside? Now, we live, I've, almost all my life, I've lived in a city, in a town. I grew up in Meridian, Mississippi, and that's 50,000 people. And, 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 you know, even in the summer and you go outside, you can't see the stars very well. And I remember one time I went to my uncle Shed's. His name was Shelton. And it was in, out, outside of Ethel, Mississippi. Now, Ethel, Mississippi is not, as big as, not near as big as Perkins. And he lived outside Ethel, Mississippi. And I remember going, and I got to spend two weeks with him one summer. And I remember walking outside, because he lived out in the country. And I looked up, and I said, are all these stars always here? Never seen that many stars. I mean, you can go out right now, and you can see some stars. But let me tell you, if there's no lights around, you can really see some stars. I mean, how many lights you think there were when Abram walked out from his tent? Not very many. And look what he said. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now if you've gone out in the country and you can look at the stars, you can't count them. There's millions of them. And you just go, Wow! And can you imagine Abram saying, God saying, See all the stars? Count them, if you can count them. And he's going, I can't count that. Sure, nobody can count that. Except God, because he named them all. He said, that's how many descendants you're going to have. You're going to have. Thousands come 
from Abram. Not just one. Thousands. In our lives, the promises of God are exactly the same. He'll always do beyond what you could imagine. Look back at your life, how God's used you and how God's done things. Isn't it better than you imagined? Isn't it better than you thought it was going to be? Doesn't He do things and you go, wow, what a, what a, boy, that's amazing. I never would have thought about that. I look at my life and to get to think I get to be in this church. I'd have never guessed that. I never thought that. See, there's twice or three times as many here. There's five times as many here tonight as there was the day I came. And with us is a small crowd tonight. I remember dreaming. This wasn't like this, but I remember being right here one time looking out at these pews that were here saying, Oh Lord, someday would you give us a hundred people? My Sunday school class has 200 in it. I'm mad if there's not 200 in Sunday school, right? I used to dream that if we could just have 100 come into church. Did he do beyond what I ever could have asked or imagined? Didn't he do the same thing in your life? Didn't he do things and you look back and you go, but that's a lot better than I thought. Sometimes the best thing to do is say, let me just get out of the way and let God do what he wants to do. It'll be a lot better than I'm planning anyway. He is our strength and shield. He is our reward. He is our protection. When God makes a promise, it's always true. Think about some of His promises. He's promised it's eternal life. Titus 1, verses 1 and 2, God who cannot lie promised eternal life. That's why the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you can know that you have eternal life. Because He says, if you believe in Me, I give you eternal life. He keeps His promises. He gives us the power to live. In Galatians, he says, walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He gives us the power to live. That's a promise of God. He says, I'll provide every need that you have, Philippians 4.19. You can be guaranteed that whatever need you have, he's going he's gonna to do it. There's a fourth thing, I think. Isn't there another one up there? Yeah, protection. they never leave you. There's so many, I just put, put three or four up there. Every one of those are true, and you can count on it. You can count on it without even thinking about it. You can count on it. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 Abraham knew what God had promised he was able to perform. Whatever he promises is able to perform. Now, we're not like that. We make promises all the time. We can't keep them. Because we're not all-powerful, and we lie. Oh, I'll be glad to help you move Saturday morning. And then Saturday morning comes. Eh, eh, eh. Oh, I'm not getting up. I know I said I'd go. I'd, they, there's going to be plenty of help. Right? Isn't that what we do sometimes? We don't keep our promises. And then even if we say, I'm going to go help them move. And the car won't crank. And you go, well, I can't even get there. See, you're not all powerful. You can't do everything you promise. But God is all powerful. And he cannot lie. And whatever he promises is going to happen. Do you realize that from this point, the guy says, come on outside, see the stars? That's how many kids you're going to have. They're coming from you, man. And you go, wow. Next week? Next month? Next year? Next five years? Next ten years? Next twenty years? When is this going to happen? It could be as long as twenty, almost twenty-five years before this comes to pass. And sometimes we say, oh, I don't think you're going to do it. He just says, you're just not waited long enough yet. 
F.B. Meyer said, so often we interpret God's delays as God's denials. Sometimes it takes a while. Now, there's something that you can't tell from English. There is a break in the narrative here. I want you, if you read it in English, you'll say, and he took him outside and he looked toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and it reckoned to him for righteousness. It almost looks like that when he went out and showed him everything, then Abraham said, now I believe you. That's not how it is in the original language. In fact, we're going to find that there's a break there. Before the writer goes and gives another dialogue, we're going to, remember we said we're going to get two dialogues, we look at the first dialogue. Before we get the second dialogue, God reminds us of a truth. And it's, it's about that Abraham had believed God, Abraham had trusted God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, before we see this verse where it says Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, we need to understand something about the way this is written in the original language. In the Hebrew, there's actually a break there. There's a parenthesis. Uh, let me give you the language. If you notice, if, if you got a New American Standard, mine says this. It says, then he believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. I think the NIV just goes and says, Abraham believed in the Lord and it's counted for righteousness. A New King James or an Old King James says, says, and Abraham believed God. Now, in the Hebrew, it's what we call a vav disjunctive, which means it stops the narrative and gives information. It's sort of like Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then it stopped. There's a vibe disjunctive there because next he's beginning to give us the details on how he created the heavens and the earth. In this passage, he, he talks and then there's a break. And God's going to remind us of something. Alan Ross is one of my Hebrew professors, uh, Hebrew professor at Dallas Seminary, uh, said this. He said, the writer did not want to show sequence, but he wanted to have a break in the order to supply information. How this could be and should be translated is Abraham had believed God and it had been counted to him for righteousness. John Salem in his commentary says that as Abraham had believed, it had been counted. See, when did Abraham believe God? Do you think that it's been all the way up to here and finally Abraham believes God and he gets credited righteousness? When do you think he believed God? What do you think? When he what? I think when he left there of the Chaldees, because God said, I want you to leave, I'm going to go to, land, go to a land that I'm going to show you, and then I'm going to give you this land and a seed and a blessing. And Abram left and went. I, I, think, I think that's when he believed there. I think Genesis 15:6 is sort of what we call the, paraf- the paris- uh, paragraph or the little thing where he says, it's going to stop and said, now, Abraham had believed the Lord and had been reckoned to him for righteousness. We have this parenthesis. It updates the reader. It lets us know. Now, let's look at the verse, because what does it say? Abraham had believed in the Lord. Believe. It's the Hebrew, amen. We get amen from it. It's been translated from Hebrew to Greek to English. It means to believe something, to take it as true. Abram believed in the Lord. He trusted God. He trusted what God had promised him. And it was counted, reckoned, credited to him for righteousness. Now, I want you to notice two or three things. I just want you to look at the verse. It says, Abraham believed in the Lord. There's always the object of our faith. Always. There's no such thing as a leap of faith. There's the object of the faith. The object of the faith in this passage is the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord. He believed what the Lord had told him. He believed there's objective truth there. There always is truth. There's always something to be believed. Remember, we said there's no such thing as a leap of faith. People use it all the time. They say, a man was walking on a mountain at night. 
I don't know why they're walking on the mountain at night. He falls over the side. He holds, grabs a hold of some branch, and he's hanging. He doesn't know how far down. He doesn't want to die. He thinks he's going to die, and a voice comes to him and says, Hello. And he goes, What? What? He says, Listen, you can't see it, but just below you, about a foot down, is a ledge. If you let go of the branch, you will land on the ledge. And people say, That's a leap of faith. No, it's not. There's an object of faith. He's believing that voice. He's believing that that voice is telling him the truth. Question? The what now? The delivered salvation. He believed when he was a believer at first. But would this not be considered a like you say we're saved, we're continuing to be saved, and we want to be saved uh-huh. again? Wouldn't that be a deliverance salvation? Would he's talking about that? No, no, no. I think in this passage he's saying. It's a past tense idea that he had believed God and it had been credited to him for righteousness. It's not saying that in the flow of this passage, because Abraham then saw that God was going to give him all this offspring, that he says, now I believe you. The writer is saying that Abraham was, was a man who had already believed God and had been counted to him for righteousness. That's what he's doing. It's a little bit hard because the way that most of our English Bibles translated it, it, it puts it that way. Now, here's the thing I want you to think about. There's always the object of faith. It has been said that faith has no value unless it links us with some object. You know, it's got to have an object. And and the old saying is that it's an amazing faith. No, it's not an amazing faith. In fact, look at this quote right here. I don't need wonderful faith in God. No, I don't. I need faith in the wonderful God. It's not my quality or quantity of faith. It's the object that counts. And it's the same every time. And I've taught this many, many times, so it's not new to any of us. But it is not how much I believe. It is not how sincere I am in my belief. It is the object of my faith that saves me. I can put all my faith in Buddha. I can be sincere about it. And I'm not saved because Buddha's not a savior. But I can put my faith as small as a grain of mustard seed in Jesus Christ. And I have eternal life. So it is always the object of faith which is the important part. Not the amount of faith and not the quality of the faith. It's the object of the faith that counts. Abraham had believed, had put his faith in the Lord and it had been credited, counted to him for righteousness. It's a banking term. That's how he's he's righteous. He's a righteous man. Righteousness always comes by faith. Now, I want you to think about this. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're not righteous, but God gives to us His righteousness when we believe. Now think about this. Every one of us in this room, if you have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, and I hope and pray that every one of you have, I know almost every one of you personally, so I'd say every one of this room, we've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Every one of you have been given in your account God's perfect righteousness. It's been deposited to your account. You're perfectly righteous. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him for righteousness. In fact, those verses that we see, when we believe, we're given righteousness. Romans 4, 5, to him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Philippians 3, 9, being found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is the law, but the righteousness of God, which comes on the basis of faith. You get God's righteousness when you believe. It's that simple. It's that powerful. I think it's one of the greatest truths in the Bible. It's actually called imputation. I've been, we have a class that meets on Tuesday nights. And it's the 2-2 class, and we're looking at all these different terms. Well, this coming Tuesday night, we're going to look at imputation, which is God imputes to you His righteousness when you believe. And that's what we see right here in Genesis 15, verse 6. When we sin, we owe God death. But Jesus Christ died in our place, paid for our sin, and we trust in Him. God gives us righteousness. Whitfield said this, Faith in Jesus Christ is what sets Christianity apart from all man-made religions. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ who died and rose again.
Here's the question. Are you righteous? In yourself, you've sinned and come short of the glory of God. Like sheep, you've gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none good. We all have our goodness as filthy rags. So think about it. What do, we, what do we get? When we sin, what do we get? Death. When we do good deeds, what do we get? Filthy rags. They all tie together. It's death as well because none of, none of it adds up. So how do we get righteous? If, if when we sin, we get death, and then when we do good, we get filthy rags because the righteousness of man is filthy rags, how in the world do we get God's righteousness? How? By faith. As soon as you believe, you have give, you're given God's righteousness. So I hope and pray that everyone in this room, that you have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. And what do you have? You have God's righteousness. Well, this is the, the first dialogue. The first dialogue, uh, God says, I promise you to lay and seed the blessing. And Abraham says, oh, okay, I got that. But what about, what about the kids? What about the offspring? And God says, look at this. Now let's see the second dialogue. I think that's the next slide there. The second dialogue. It's going to take place at a different time. That's why I think Genesis 15:6 is kind of a, a stop place. It's giving information because this first aspect that we read, 1 through 5, takes place at night. Is that not correct? Because where did he take him? Outside to see the what? The stars. So it took place at night. We're going to find the second time that's going to start in verse 7. It's during the daytime. And as we study the passage, they go from daytime to nighttime. So this is a different time. Notice verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give this, this land, to give you this land to possess it. Now, God reminds him of the promise. This is your land. He, he, remember, remember what the, the promise was. I'm going to give you the land and the seed and the blessing and all of these things. So Abram questions God. Now we thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't you just question him a while ago and what God do? He brought you out and took you to see the stars. Now this is another time. And God says, by the way, I'm the Lord God who, uh, who brought you out of, you know, I'm, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land. Now let me tell you something. It's coming, that, that message is coming directly from God. I'm the Lord God. Now watch what happened. And I'll go very quickly because we need to be through. Uh, he said, oh, Lord God, how will I know that I will possess it? How am I going to know? Cross my heart? Uh, do you swear? How are you going to know that God's going to keep his word? Well, God's going to give him a contract. And he's going to cut the contract because it was a covenant. Now, remember in those days, how did they make a covenant? How did they make a contract? Nowadays, we get the paper and we write our names on them. In those days, what they did is they took an animal and they cut it in two. And they divided the animal in half. And the two people would lock arms, and they would walk between the animal. That was signing the covenant. Both people had a part in it. And it, what you're saying is, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, you can cut me in two. Now, when God makes this covenant with Abram, since it is an unconditional covenant, is Abram and God going to walk between the animals? Yes or no? No. Who's going to walk between the animals? Just God. And we'll see it. We won't see it tonight. We'll see it the next time. Notice what happens. He said, O oh Lord God, how, may not, how do I know that I'll possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So he's got a, a heifer, a goat, a ram, and two birds. Right? What did he do? He brought them all to him and cut them in two. Cut the heifer in two. Cut the goat in two. Cut the uh, ram in two. But it says, but he did not cut the birds in two. You know why? Too 
little. So just that's why you get two of them. You put one on one side, one on the other. Say I'm cutting this animal. I got these two sides. If you come to that little bitty bird. You got here. Let's just put two birds so that you can walk between the two birds. That's what he's doing. He's getting ready to sign the covenant. Now notice. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now, notice this is a totally different time because Abram keeps going, Get the birds off here. God, what do you want me to do? Not, and then watch. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. What's this all about? We have to see it next time. It's powerful. And we'll see what it's all about. God gives him some promises. It's tied in with the prophecy concerning the nation of Israel and the future and what's going to happen. And we're going to see God signing the covenant. If you want to, go ahead and read the rest of the passage because you'll see the smoking fire come down and go through. And Abram's awake and he's watching God pass between the animals. It's powerful. We'll see that. Well, we've seen the dialogue between Abraham and God about the promises and the questions and all this. The first dialogue was the promise of protection and provision. Abraham said, how? And God said, your offsprings will be like the stars. And then we saw the second dialogue where God promised the land. And Abraham said, how? And God says, I promise you and I'm going to cut the covenant and it will be that way. Let me give you some applications. First of all, trust God's promises. That's the key. What does he, whatever he promises, he delivers. His word tells us that his, his character guarantees it. Do you trust what God has taught us and says to us? One, one of the things, and here's what's so great about it, one of the great, best things about the future is that it comes a day at a time. And you just have to trust God. Because Let me tell you, do you want to know what's going to happen next week? You do not want to know. Let me tell you, I'm going to say this to you. I, I am so glad that I didn't know that Catherine was going to hit her head and be up there. I didn't want to know that ahead of time. I mean, I, I, I wish it had never happened. But while it was happening, that was better than saying, golly, only 24 hours before she gets hurt. Do you want to know the future? You don't want to know the future. Everybody says, I want to know the future. You don't want to know it. Take it about a second at a time. That's the best way to deal with it because you're going to have to trust God moment by moment. What are some things He's promised us? Eternal life. Do you have the assurance? If you believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, what do you have? How long does it last? When did it start? The moment you what? Believed. So the moment you believe you have eternal life, you should never doubt your salvation. Never. That's a promise from God. What about protection? Will He ever leave you or forsake you? No. And that, what did He tell them? Lo, I'm with you always, even to what? The end of the age? I mean, we saw it this morning. And provision. He'll provide everything that we need. Rest in the promises of God. Matthew Henry said, Faith in the firm foundation in God that He will perform all that He has promised. So trust the promises of God. Number two, realize that righteousness comes by faith. To be righteous, you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. We've all sinned. We all need God's righteousness. In fact, no matter what we do, if we sin, we get what? Death. And if we do good, what do we get? Filthy rags. So what do we end up with? Nothing. The only way you're going to get God's righteousness is how? By faith. Romans 4, 5, simply by faith. I, I don't know where I got this poem. It, was, it was, wasn't an author with it, but it's called Heaven for Sinners. It says, what a Savior, what a plan that He saves an undeserving man. Thank you, Lord. I have no merit. The praise is yours and none can share it. It's true. God's made a covenant with us by His blood. He has paid the price. By faith we are saved forever.
My hope and prayer is that every one of you in this room, that you have come to Jesus Christ simply by faith. You have trusted in Him and Him alone, and God has given to you His righteousness. Then you're a child of God, and you're a righteous person. You you can't be righteous in yourself, because righteousness is filthy rags. We all sin, and we owe God death. But righteousness comes by faith. May we rest in the promises of God as those who have been declared righteous and made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And if you've got questions, comments, we'll, we'll deal with them. Heavenly Father, what a great passage. Thank you, Lord, for uh, these great truths. Lord, first of all, thank you that we can trust your promises. Whatever you say is true. We, we rest in them. We take them day at a time. We, that's what we want to do. And Lord, we realize that the only way to have a, an eternal relationship with you is to be a righteous person. And the only way to get righteousness is that you give it to us and it comes by faith. Lord, thank you, Lord, that it's not our goodness, our works, or our, anything that we do to gain righteousness because we could never do it. Thank you that it's simply faith alone in Christ alone. You give to us your righteousness. Just as Abraham had believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, we believe you and it is credited to us for righteousness. Thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.